This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I want to start with um, uh, a story that Bhante Sangharakshita tells from the Zen tradition. He tells it in this book, Vision and Transformation. And uh, it's a story that uh, some of you might be familiar with. Um, I was familiar with it. Uh, uh, and then we studied it in Mitra study uh, some time ago, and I found myself very, very moved, re-sort of moved uh, by it. So I want to start with that. Um, hopefully it will be connected. Uh, it's a story of a, of, a, of a young man who's uh, waste. Well, Bante describes him as a wastrel. So this is um, in Japan, uh, and uh, possibly medieval Japan, uh, and he's a wastrel. Uh, I guess what that means is that he spent his youth, misspent his youth, uh, on uh, all the things that you can spend, misspend your youth on. <laughs> And uh, he has got to the point where actually that hedonistic lifestyle has uh, disgusted him, himself. He's, he's got not only fed up with it, but he's full of sort of self-disgust and uh, disgust with life. Uh, and uh, there's a certain... Uh, it's not only run out on him, it's like it's run out and left him very... Uh, empty. Um, and he decides that the only thing he, he can do is to go and become a monk in a Zen monastery. Uh, in, in, you know, uh, that's what you do, I guess, in medieval Japan. So Bhante says that he doesn't actually want to become a monk, it's just that he hasn't got any other options <laughs> uh, that feel worthwhile uh, in life. So he'll, he'll go and you know, give himself to the service of this monastery. Now, uh, I don't know if you know much about Zen, but at least traditionally, it's not easy to enter a Zen monastery. It's not easy to be accepted into a Zen monastery. Uh, there's this um, uh, image that's used about kneeling in the snow. You have to wait outside, kneel in the snow uh, for several days before you're allowed to enter to show that you're really, really committed, to show that you really want to do it. I sometimes think perhaps the LBC could be a bit more like that. <laughs> But then I kind of think that actually, were it like that, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be here myself. So it's just as well that we're not Zen. <laughs> uh, and, and we'd have to kneel in the snow. But anyway, he enters... Uh, well, he, he goes to see the abbot. The abbot wants to see any new uh, potential novice monk. And uh, the abbot... Uh, asks him about his life, and the young man's very um, open, very honest, and tells him about all the uh, stupid things he's done, about all the uh, immoral things he's done, about how he's wasted uh, so much and probably caused others hurt in, in the process, and how he's actually just not good for anything. He's got nothing to offer, so he'd like to become a monk. And the abbot says, well, is there anything that you are good at? And uh, the young man thinks for a minute and then says, well, I'm not bad at chess. I can play a game of chess. Uh, and so the abbot says, OK. And he calls for a chessboard to be brought. 
and then he summons uh, another monk. He summons an elderly monk who's been there 30, maybe 40 years, is uh, old and haggard-looking, but who's obviously good at chess. And uh, so the young man and the haggard monk, the old monk, are seated opposite each other. And then the abbot brings out a sword. He brings out his sword and lays it on the table. And he says, play, play, and whoever loses, I'm going to chop their head off with this sword. And in the Zen tradition, uh, that's a serious threat. (laughs) That's a serious thing to uh, threaten somebody with. Uh, And and Zen masters sort of, you don't quite know whether they're joking or not. Uh, So so this is sort of deadly serious. And uh, so there's swords on the table. There's these two uh, men sitting opposite each other, and they start to play. And the young man is uh, not bad, actually. He's, he's not bad. But then the old man is not bad either. In fact, he's pretty good. Uh, so they're, they're playing. And, uh, they're playing this kind of chess game. Uh, and at one point, the young man sort of uh, really... Everything sort of focuses in his mind. And he realises he's really going to have to play uh, his best if he's going to, uh, well, not only win, but live. And uh, you can probably imagine what's going through his mind, but the sort of uh, the nervousness, the anxiety, the adrenaline. Uh, but he manages to summon his resources and start playing really, really well, really well, probably better than he's ever played before. So the game moves on, and he is winning. The young man is starting to win, and it looks like... He's uh, got himself in a uh, position where he's going to be unassailable. He's, he's going to win. And he relaxes. And he relaxes. And as he relaxes, he looks opposite him at this old monk, this old haggard uh, monk who must have been meditating for 30 or 40 years. And what happens in the young man is that he's overcome with compassion. His heart opens to this old man sitting opposite him who's been summoned by the abbot, who's prepared to not even ask any questions, uh, but prepared to play a game of chess and prepared to die uh, for him, for this young man. And uh, he's very moved by that. And he thinks, well, what have I done with my life? I've done very little of worth. And yet this man opposite me has spent his life trying to accumulate wisdom uh, and truth. And surely his life is worth more than mine. And he uh, makes deliberately makes a silly move in the game of chess. And the old monk uh, manages to uh, make a decent move. And the young man again makes a false move deliberately trying to lose. And the old monk makes another move, and the man again makes this false move. And suddenly, suddenly, the abbot stands up and knocks the pieces off the board and says, enough, enough. And he dismisses the old monk, and he says, no one has won, no one has lost, And then he says to the young man, 
that today you have learnt two things. You've learnt concentration and you've learnt compassion. And since you've learnt compassion, you'll do. <laughs> Which is lovely, isn't it? You'll do. And uh, the abbot, Bante goes on to say, must have realised that he had on his hands here uh, somebody who was a budding bodhisattva who uh, could really, really go far in the spiritual life. And uh, I just find that story really moving, even telling it now, I find it really, really moving. And what it illustrates for me um, is something to do with, uh, well, it's, it, it just brings Vajrasattva to mind for me, uh, this preparedness to let go, to die, to surrender, uh, out of compassion, not out of despair, not out of um, having lost in life and not being able to go carry on, but out of compassion, letting go of everything, including a preparedness to let go of life itself. And uh, so I, talk, I called this talk not about purity. And uh, after, I mean, when you, when you give talks, you have to, the marketing, the blurb comes out uh, weeks, if not months, in advance on our program, on our website, etc. And uh, I hadn't given a second of thought by that stage. I just said, Vajrasattva, not about purity. And then I thought, oh dear. Because <laughs> it sort of is, isn't it? <laughs> it sort of is. And uh, David, who's been organising the day, has been uh, teasing me for the last few weeks to say, why isn't it about purity then? <laughs> and I'm sort of thinking, well, perhaps it is, perhaps it is. And I even had an email from somebody I don't know, an order member that I don't know in Aria Lota in the States, who... <laughs> said that she wanted an article on Vajrasattva. She'd been browsing the web, saw that I was giving a talk called Vajrasattva Not About Purity. I got really intrigued, and would I send her the talk? And, the other... <laughs> and I had to write back and confess and say, well, actually no, partly because the talk hasn't been written yet, and partly because I don't know why it isn't about purity. <laughs> but then this... This story comes to mind, and what I think I'm trying to get at, because I am trying to get at something, is that it's not about just following the rules and being good in the conventional sense. This man, this young man, who uh, walked into this monastery, he wasn't uh, a conventionally good man. He wasn't moral in uh, a conventional sense. Uh, there was nothing that he'd done in his life that was worthy of that uh, that, that sort of uh, appellation. He, uh, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he himself thought of himself as somebody who uh, was um, worthless, and uh, he'd probably done a lot of things that he had right to feel ashamed about. And yet, and yet, uh, when the time came, uh, there were these qualities of compassion and awareness uh, in him. Uh, that were heroic, that are absolutely heroic. And uh, it's a deeper, deeper um, goodness. Goodness isn't even the right word uh, that, um, that we're talking about here. And in a way, Vajrasattva is something deeper. It's as deep as we can possibly go, and deeper still, and then we find Vajrasattva. And when we do, we find 
that wisdom and compassion within us. That's what we find. That's what Vajrasattva is. Purity in our culture is often um, just not a very attractive word. When I was ordained, uh, I was... Um, uh, well, I took up the Vajrasattva sadhana, and uh, I'd felt this connection with this figure uh, for a number of years, uh, but I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure whether it was the right practice for me to take up. Uh, partly because I'd never really been attracted by ethics, uh, <laughs> ethics and uh, I didn't kind of feel attracted by purity and, uh, or wanting to be better or purer. So Sabuti was my preceptor, and I said this to him, uh, fortunately before my ordination. <laughs> I said, he said, look, who, who, which practice do you think, which figure do you think you're going to take up? And I said, well, probably I'd like to take up Vajrasattva if you think that's the right practice for me. Uh, and, and, well, the first thing he said, yes, that's exactly the right practice for you, uh, which I found very heartening. Uh, I, I, I then had the presence of mind to say, well, why? And he said he didn't know. He just, it was the right practice. He couldn't say. Uh, and then I said, well, I'm not very attracted by purity. Uh, and my heart was sort of in my mouth as I said that, because it was a very important um, thing for me, whether I was going to be uh, given this practice, this this practice. And he looked at me very, very squarely and he said, Vajrasattva is nothing to do with purity. And that was like, um, it was like a teaching. And I didn't want, I didn't, I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant. I didn't need to ask, why not? Could you say more? In a way, perhaps it would have been better to. But I knew what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant, and he knew what I meant when I said that I wasn't attracted by purity. And it was a very strong communication that felt um, uh, somehow that sealed uh, my future, that sealed my bond with Vajrasattva in a certain sense. So what do I mean when I say that I wasn't attracted to purity? Well, I think I had cultural... Uh, connotations of the word that come from our culture. So purity in our culture is often um, to do with uh, uh, sex or virginity, isn't it? Or in the Christian context it is. It's very much to do with, well, the Virgin Mary symbolises purity and uh, the fact that she's chaste uh, 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 is a virgin. Is A great deal of store is put on to sexual purity, as it were. Also, it has connotations, at least to me, of some sort of weakness, of insipidness, of um, uh, a sort of overly moralistic kind of um, attitude. By moralistic, I don't mean... Um, I mean some, an attitude where we're very over-concerned about whether other people are moral or not. Do you, do you know what I mean? In that sort of rather narrow, judging kind of way... Uh, uh, in that sort of puritanical way, actually. Uh, and those connotations must have been alive in my mind when I said that I wasn't interested in purity. But actually, looking up purity, there are two kind of definitions, aren't there? There is purity in the sense of uh, morally good, and that is associated in our culture with uh, chastity and 
virginity and all of those things. Uh, uh, but also, purity is, it can mean um, unmixed, yeah? It can mean something that's not got any adulterating substances in it. It's pure in the sense of pure gold or pure orange juice, uh, to be less archetypal. <laughs> uh, it's, it's unmixed by anything else. It's concentrated. It's, it's pure in that sense, pure water. And maybe that comes a bit closer to the purity of Vajrasattva. Actually, it's still not the purity of Vajrasattva, uh, not completely, but it comes a bit closer. So who is Vajrasattva? So I want to say a little bit about uh, who Vajrasattva is um, and sort of why, and then a little bit about how we might approach him. Um, Vajrasattva is uh, a figure... Uh, 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 an archetypal figure from the tantric tradition, from the Tibetan tantric tradition. And uh, so he comes from, um, in a way, a culture very different from ours. Uh, but he's a universal archetype. It's a universal archetype that speaks, I think, to all people. Um, he embodies, he's the embodiment of the five Buddhas of the five Buddha mandala, the five jinnas. So that's why we've got this year of Vajrasattva this year, because uh, the previous five years we've been looking at, one by one, the five Buddhas of the five Buddha Mandala. And Vajrasattva is often called the sixth Buddha, because he brings all of those five together. He is, in a sense, the Buddha's Buddha, as Subhuti once put, uh, said to me. Uh, those five, he, he wears that crown, uh, and on this image painted by Arloka. This is a copy of a print by Arloka, a, a painting by Arloka. Um, he's got a crown of skulls. There are five skulls. But then next to the skulls, behind the skulls, there are these five jewels in the colours of the five Buddhas. So he wears the crown of the five jinnas. So all the wisdoms of the five Buddhas, uh, uh, I'm not going to go through all the wisdoms, and all the qualities of the five Buddhas, all their compassionate qualities, all their altruistic qualities, are embodied together in this one figure. He sits above them. Uh, so he's all of them and more. He's more. Uh, he, in a way, he's everything. If reality is everything, uh, it's personified in Vajrasattva. His wisdom, his compassion, his, his, um, his all the Buddha qualities uh, in this single form, in this single being. It's said that uh, uh, form, uh, the first form, um, beyond Vajrasattva in a way, there is no form. So Vajrasattva is the first form out of the realm of no form. And what he is is this brilliant, brilliant white light. He's made of brilliant white light. It's white light taken form. And although it's brilliant, it's not cold. Because sometimes it's described as um, scintillating like sunlight on snow. And it can give somehow an impression that Vajrasattva is beautiful but cold. Somehow very, very distant and very, very cold. But actually, uh, it, he's not cold. It's, it's full of love. The light of Vajrasattva is the light of compassion and love. Uh, he scintillates with all the colours of the rainbow. He's surrounded by this aura of uh, rainbows, of rainbow lights. 
He holds, of course, the Vajra to his heart, and uh, at his hip he holds the Vajra bell. And uh, there's so much symbolism in each of those um, implements. Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to go into them. But the Vajra, when Vajrasattva holds it, when it's in conjunction with this bell, the Vajra is the symbol of compassion. He's holding compassion, the very symbol of compassion to his heart. But it's not just compassion as we know it as an emotion. It's compassion as a quality of reality itself. And he's holding it to the heart. And the bell that he's holding to his hip is the symbol of wisdom, of emptiness, of ultimate uh, uh, penetration into reality, of wisdom. Um, there's, there's all sorts of, um, uh, yeah, more that I could say. I mean, for example, the bell is a feminine symbol. Wisdom in the Tibetan tradition is usually personified in female form. Uh, and compassion, uh, which is seen as more active, uh, an active engagement in the world, is symbolized in um, uh, masculine form. Uh, Vajrasattva sort of unites ma masculine and feminine. He, I mean, you talk of him as he, and yet he's androgynous. He's not male. Uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's sort of above all dualities, all dualities. So he's enlightened consciousness personified. And uh, you might say, well, why bother personifying enlightened consciousness? Wouldn't it be better not to... Uh, have these personified images, these symbols at all, because after all, when we start to personify them, don't they start to sound very much like God? So it's a valid question. Why do that? Um, why personify them? Uh, well, Bante says that in order to approach enlightenment, in order to start to have a feeling for it, we need to objectify <coughs> the qualities of wisdom, of compassion, of energy, of love, of fearlessness, of freedom, of bliss. Uh, we need to be able to objectify them, actually get a feeling for them, in order to assimilate them and grow into them, develop them, become them. Yeah? So we, we take symbols as a way of objectifying what wisdom would look like, what compassion would look like. What would it look like to have a mind that was completely unlimited, unlimited, uh, unbounded, completely free? Uh, this spontaneous play. He's dancing slightly. He's sitting in this uh, um, Vajrasana posture of, of stillness, of meditation, yet his upper body is swaying. It's this... Uh, I, I, I see it as the dance of reality. He's engaging with form, with the world. Uh, he's moving. Uh, what would it look like to feel those things, to have a wisdom in our mind that was um, uh, free of the prison of self, that wasn't self-centred, that was completely objective, that could see the whole universe, the whole cosmos, and not just the material cosmos, but the cosmos of consciousness, just as it is, without filtering it through the lens of I and me and self-centeredness that goes with that. On Friday, I was talking about uh, 
Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus. And I talked about how Copernicus was the first astronomer, at least in the Western world, to uh, posit that the Earth wasn't the centre of the universe. He uh, had this theory that actually the Earth was, was moving and that actually the sun was the centre. And uh, the church tried to... Well, it was heresy to say that at the time. Galileo was nearly tortured for saying that at the time, uh, or after Copernicus, uh, because it was a, a huge shift in uh, uh, our worldview if we, if we on the earth weren't the centre. Uh, where was God then, if God had created us? So what I was arguing on Friday is that we need a Copernican revolution of the mind. We still see ourselves, all of us, all of us who are unenlightened, uh, see ourselves, don't we, as the centre of the universe to some degree or other. We still live in this pre-Copernican world where, uh, of consciousness where I am the most important being uh, in this room uh, and actually on the planet. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we might dress it up in adult ways and not, not, kind of, not kind of admit to that in such a crude way. And yet emotionally that's how it feels. At a gut level, that's how it feels. What happens to me is really, really important, more so than what happens to anybody else. Uh, and that is what prevents us from seeing things as they are. That's the delusion of self that prevents us. So what would it be like to not have that? And what it would be like is this. This is what it would be like. We would be inhabiting a realm of beauty, of beauty, of love, of, uh, of complete objectivity that wasn't cold, uh, of, of connectedness, of play, of, of stillness, of serenity, and of movement and engagement and dance. So it really helps to have symbols. Bante calls, uh, talks about the transcendental other. Rather than a theistic other, which would be God, a God that's all-powerful and uh, uh, a creator, uh, what Buddhism posits is a transcendental other. Uh, so it's a symbol of otherness. And that symbol uh, isn't taken literally by Buddhism because neither is uh, this notion of other. Uh, because self and other are transcended when enlightenment is realised. So we become Vajrasattva. Uh, when we become enlightened, in a way that in a theistic tradition one can never become God, uh, whereas actually Vajrasattva is our potential. That is who we really are if we could uh, live up to our potential. And at times in the spiritual life we can glimpse that. We can glimpse that in ourselves. That young man prepared to die in the Zen monastery, uh, there was a glimpse of something of Vajrasattva in his consciousness. When, when he surrendered, when he lost. So the, the other reason I think that we really need symbols and archetypes is that if we don't have images like Vajrasattva, we'll invent other images for ourselves. We all live uh, looking for archetypal symbols. And if we don't have ones that point us in the direction of enlightenment, we'll, we'll pick up on others that don't. I was thinking of... Um, uh, Susan Boyle and Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> I, I must confess to having 
got addicted to Britain's Got Talent when it was on. Uh, am I the only one in the room? I probably am. <laughs> and uh, Susan Boyle, uh, this, this uh, woman who emerged, as it were, from nowhere. Well, it was Scotland, but... <laughs> as it were. <laughs> and uh, uh, sang with this incredible voice that stunned everybody uh, about having a dream. Uh, uh, suddenly became an archetype worldwide. She became a symbol for our human potential that goes beneath or uh, underlies or is beyond our ordinariness. She became a symbol for something much, much bigger. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to carry that symbol. She's she's not Vajrasattva. She can't hold... Uh, all the projections that millions of uh, YouTube viewers put onto her. Yeah? And uh, uh, it's, it's a... Well, nobody probably could. So, so it's a sort of thankless um, thing to ask somebody. And, and poor woman suffered for it. And then what happens is that when she disappoints, when she isn't Vajrasattva... And for heaven's sake, she was never going to be, was she? When she isn't Vajrasattva, the media turn on her. And how, how is that? You know, what, what do we do? So, so what I'm saying is we all need archetypes. Um, uh, we do need them. Uh, let's look for them in a, in a place where they will lead us to truth, to who we really can become. You can probably think of others. Okay, so another thing that I want to talk about in terms of Vajrasattva, so that's why we have Vajrasattva, that's a little bit about who Vajrasattva is. One of the things I want to talk about in terms of approaching Vajrasattva is um, uh, devotion, um, uh, surrender, uh, letting go. The young man uh, showed the capacity for ultimate surrender, the surrendering of his own life. Vajrasattva as an archetype, if we engage with him, if we want to really meet him, uh, we will need to surrender our sense of self, our sense of who we are, everything about who we are, everything about who we are. Uh, So it's not easy to meet Vajrasattva. It's not easy to really, really see Vajrasattva. We have to approach him, um, as it were, uh, slowly, we have to be prepared to um, enter into uh, a sort of relationship like you'd enter into a relationship with a lover. You gradually get to know them. And as you gain confidence in that relationship, you're able to open your heart more and let go more. Yeah? Unlike human lovers, Vajrasattva never lets us down. He never, never lets us down. Uh, in the sadhana, in the uh, mantra, there's this word samaya, samaya, which means something like bond or oath. And when you take up the Vajrasattva practice, even when you chant the mantra, in a certain sense, you're saying, uh, I'm entering into this bond with Vajrasattva. And what we do is, our job is to try and... Uh, approach him, to try and uh, be devoted to him and to everything that he represents. 
And if we do our bit, Vajrasattva meets us. He comes down, as it were, meets us more than halfway. Reality meets us. There's something really mysterious about Buddhist practice. When we make a commitment to the Dharma, uh, all sorts of things start to happen uh, to allow us to fulfill that commitment. Some of those things aren't very pleasant sometimes, but they're, they're opportunities to let go of our selfishness. And it's almost as if the universe responds. This is my experience. This is what my experience is. When I take a step forward and say, yes, okay, I will try and be a bigger, better, less selfish person, the universe sort of responds and says, great, here you go then. (laughs) And uh, it's not always a challenge. Sometimes it's just love. Sometimes it's just confidence. Sometimes it's just uh, straightforward help. But it is uh, a response. The universe responds. And that's why it's good also to see reality personified. Reality has more of the nature of consciousness than it has of inert matter. The universe isn't inert matter. When we talk in Buddhism about absolute reality, it's got the nature of awareness. Uh, So this this quality of awareness and compassion, uh, it's not just our potential, it's somehow out there in reality. Of course, that's just a a a sort of metaphor, uh, a way of speaking, because um, uh, in there and out there and all break down in the end. But that's certainly... Uh, how it feels, that reality is aware. Um, Subhuti on my ordination retreat, I mean, he comes to mind very much because I'm talking about, in a way, my ordination. Uh, Another thing he said to me, uh, I was talking about some of my experiences that were sort of slightly um, uh, magical or mystical or something that I'd had since early childhood. And... uh, Um, Some of them were connected with my father, Um, but my father had died uh, uh, a long, long time ago. I mean, by the time I was ordained, he'd been dead 20 years. So I wanted to talk to Sabuti about whether actually I was still, at some level, just a Hindu, (laughs) Uh, or whether uh, these experiences that I was having uh, had some sort of um, explanation in the Buddhist context. And what he said to me is that when you look at reality through certain eyes, reality looks back, looks back at you. That's always stayed with me, and it's become, I think, um, I kind of know what he means. Um, uh, As you develop a relationship with Vajrasattva, it's a two-way thing. It's not just that we uh, imagine this beautiful figure above us uh, and try and devote uh, ourselves to him and chant his mantra, etc. He responds. It looks back. Yeah. So, in a way, uh, that's fantastic. How wonderful. In another way, it's a warning. The Vajrasattva practice is powerful. The mantra is powerful. So if we've been chanting it this morning, bear that in mind. Yeah? So, letting go, surrender, is um, a part of that practice. For me... Uh, the Vajrasattva practice is beautiful. It's achingly beautiful. Uh, and there's an element of longing in it. Uh, it's almost like there's a call of longing for Vajrasattva and then a response from him. Uh, in the practice itself, uh, the response is um, tangible. 
uh, Vajrasattva from his heart, uh, a nectar, white nectar, starts to flow, and it flows onto the crown of one's head and fills one with white nectar, and it purifies one in the process. So there's some... Um, and, and that's sort of... When you do the practice, it's physical. It's physical, it's tangible. So, so let me just read you a poem uh, that I really like, a, a, a poem by Rumi that personifies, not personifies, typifies this um, letting go for me. Uh, uh, I think it's just very, very beautiful. Um, yeah, let me just read you. It's just a few lines. <clears throat> the way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And falling, they're given wings. So Rumi puts it much better than I can about how love, if we're going to tread the way of love, and you could say it's the way of Vajrasattva, how we will need to learn to let go, to fall, to fall. And if we can do that with confidence, with shraddha, with devotion, then we experience the freedom, the ecstatic freedom of birds flying uh, in infinite space, in infinite space. That is what our mind truly is if we can learn to just let go of this sense of holding on to self, which isn't there in the first place. So, so what Rumi is talking about there is a death. It's a spiritual death. Uh, it's what the uh, young monk in the Zen monastery was uh, doing. It's a spiritual death. And Vajrasattva is associated with spiritual death. He's also associated with physical death. Uh, spiritual death, you don't actually have to die. So nobody's going to jump off a cliff, do you know what I mean, literally, uh, in order to fly. Uh, it's not quite like that. But internally, it can feel like that. Internally, it can feel as terrifying as jumping off a cliff, or as blissful uh, as jumping off a cliff and flying, uh, depending on how much we hold on and how much uh, faith we have. Uh, internally it can feel like that, but physically it doesn't have to be. But Vajrasattva is also associated with physical death because it's said that when we die, everything does fall away, whether we like it or not. All our sense of self, our physical self, falls away. Something of consciousness carries on, but it's bewildered. Our consciousness will be bewildered at not having a physical body, not recognising itself. Yeah? It said that in that moment of, of death, the light of reality shines on us. We actually are exposed in a way that's naked to reality. Uh, and it's said to be a dazzling white light that appears in our inner vision, appears to the consciousness that's just died in its inner vision. That light is symbolised by Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva appears at the moment of death. That's what it said, in the, what is literally believed in the Tibetan tradition, and I'm prepared to go along with that. Uh, myself, you don't have to, but I, I go along with it. And uh, what's said is 
that we can't handle it because we haven't prepared in life to let go. We haven't surrendered enough. So we can't handle that moment of reality. It dazzles us, frightens us, and what happens is we shrink back from it and we take another form uh, eventually. And uh, uh, so we lose this opportunity of becoming Vajrasattva because we don't recognise that that light of reality is actually our own mind. It's actually who we are. And, and in failing to recognise it because we've not practised, because we've not meditated, because we've not let go, uh, we, we lose an opportunity. So Vajrasattva is very associated with... Uh, uh, death. He's also, his mantra is chanted for people who have just died. Um, uh, as we were chanting this morning, I was just thinking of Michael Jackson. And, uh, I mean, in a way, Michael Jackson is just one death amongst thousands that have probably happened in the last 48 hours. But he was perhaps one of the most famous people to have died in the last 48 hours, and perhaps one of the most sort of unexpected and shocking deaths because of that. Uh, and part of me was, at times, when I could recall, chanting for him. It's, it's a good thing to do, to chant for the dead, for the just dead, because you're trying to say to their consciousness, recognise yourself. OK, so I'm going to move on, because I've, I've not much time. So... One of the things that I just really, really want to emphasize is that um, reality in Buddhism, uh, not in Buddhism, reality in reality, <laughs> uh, is extremely positive, is extremely positive. So the reason that Buddhism asks us to think about death, to think about letting go, etc., is because there's something that's much, much more that we're capable of being of experiencing. It's extremely positive. It's extremely beautiful. So Buddhism talks about emptiness. We've had lots of readings this morning about emptiness. Uh, and emptiness, when Buddhism talks about it, it doesn't mean a, a black void. It means this scintillating, uh, beautiful, uh, compassionate uh, consciousness of Vajrasattva. That is what happens when we enter into emptiness. When we touch shunyata, it's like we're overwhelmed with how beautiful reality really is, all the time really was. We're overwhelmed with the love that was always there for us, within us, for all beings, for everything. And in that glimpse of shunyata, of reality, of vajrasattva, what we experience is... Uh, a sort of paradox. Uh, we experience that everything is perfect. The universe is completely perfect. Suddenly we've undergone that Copernican revolution and uh, the universe is vast. There are galaxies. There are, there are untold distances and visions that open up that are indescribable. Everything is just perfect. And we, in a way, just couldn't see that because we insisted on being the centre of that universe and, and blotted it all out. So in a certain sense, everything uh, falls into place and it's wonderful. But in another sense, there's, a, there's another aspect of the paradox. We look and we see this world as we've... Uh, a world of beings, uh, this, this earth that we inhabit... And we see the suffering around us. And the love that we feel uh, in response to that suffering turns into compassion. 
and there's this overwhelming urge to engage with alleviating suffering in the world to, in whatever way we can. So there's this paradox of actually uh, a deep, deep serenity that sees everything is fine. Even death isn't a problem. Even death isn't a problem. And a deep acknowledgement of the suffering in the world and an a overwhelming urge that isn't personal. It's like something comes through. It's not personal to help alleviate that suffering wherever, wherever and however we can. So the... Engagement with the world, the alleviation of suffering, the compassion, is what in Buddhism is um, personified as a bodhisattva. Uh, the, the, the timeless perfection, the primordial perfection, the serenity, is uh, personified as a Buddha. Yeah? So a Buddha sits in this complete serenity. Uh, he is the whole universe. The Bodhisattva engages in the world of form, in our world, to help alleviate suffering. And Vajrasattva is both. He's said to be a Buddha who appears in Bodhisattva form. So he's both. He unites that, that duality of eternity and time, of infinity and uh, form and space, of compassion and that wisdom that he holds to his heart. So I'm going to, in a way, start concluding now by saying, well, how in practice do we approach him? I've talked about devotion and I've talked about surrender. Uh, traditionally, the reason we don't see Vajrasattva, the reason that we don't see him within us, we don't see him outside of us, we don't see him in everything, because everything is Vajrasattva if we could only see it, the reason we don't do that is because there are veils obscuring our vision. And there are two veils that are said to be obscuring. One is the veil of klesha, of passions, of emotional attachment, of greed, of hatred, of all the passions that keep us uh, tied down. Uh, and the other is the, uh, uh, the veil of what's called nyeya, which is the veil of ignorance which is not seeing things as they really are, which is assuming, uh, believing that we are a fixed and separate self around which the universe revolves. We've got it profoundly wrong, uh, both in terms of our views and in terms of our emotional responses. And the veils of Klesha and Yeya support each other. They, they sort of mutually support each other. And they stop us from seeing what, what's really going on. So the path of removing those veils is a gradual path. You can't just tear down the veil. Uh, actually, if we did, we couldn't handle it. So it's a gradual path. And the path is a path of purification. So it is about purity. In the end, it is about purity. What we're purifying is our passions that, that restrict us, that keep alive this sense of self. And we're purifying our views that see us as separate and fixed. Yeah? We're purifying both of those things. And everything about Buddhist practice is about that purification. Yeah? Everything is about that purification. Ethics is about that purification, but meditation is also about purification. Study is about purification. Friendship is about purification. Responsibility, altruism is about purification. All of those practices are about thinning this sense of self, thinning those veils until 
what happens is you start to get tiny, tiny holes in those veils. And the light shines through. And even though it shines through a tiny fragment of a hole, it's dazzling. And we shrink back. But gradually we get used to it. We get used to uh, that dazzling light of Vajrasattva. And the holes, we can, or the veils, we can thin even further. And ultimately, yes, perhaps we can just tear down those veils that obscure reality. And when we do that, the path of purification is complete. And what we realise is that the veils were somehow never needed to be there. That it was something that we'd got profoundly wrong. That actually, there was nothing to purify. Nothing to purify because we never were a fixed self. That's what Buddhism means by emptiness. There's nothing fixed. And if there's nothing fixed, there's nothing essentially impure, just as there's nothing essentially uh, pure in the sense of good and evil uh, or right and wrong. Uh, Vajrasattva somehow is a purity that's beyond purity in that sense. It's a purity that's beyond uh, all our notions, all our notions, including good, evil, etc. But the path there is definitely uh, a gradual one and a path where ethics matters. So we need the both. We need the both. We need the path and we need the sense of a goal that's profoundly optimistic, that says that actually at any moment all we have to do is just change our perspective If we could just change our perspective, like that young man in that Zen monastery, from self to selflessness, from uh, holding on to letting go, from from, uh, grabbing to surrendering, from being earthbound to flying, if we could just change our perspective, and that's a matter of something that happens moment to moment, if we could just do that, the veils would fall away, even if they fall away for a moment. They would fall away, and all there would be would be the light, the beautiful light, the scintillating, radiant light of Vajrasattva. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 